This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and Asia-Pacific editor Damon Evans. And as we record, yesterday was Groundhog Day and anyone who might be feeling a sense of déjà vu while hearing the arguments around Shell's results being relitigated, as they are every three months now, um, you know, you'd be justified feeling that. Um, we're going to rest that for now, but by this time next week, we should have, I think, the majority, if not all, of the majors' results in. So we'll perhaps take a broader view across the board uh, at that stage. But for now, uh, I'll kick off with a story uh, up on energyvoice.com about an oil spill in a marine protected area in the UK North Sea, 150 miles off Aberdeen. So. Six and a half tonnes of oil coming off the Repsol Sinopec Oc A installation. There's a safety angle here and an environmental angle. So I'll, I'll maybe take the former firstly. Um, and we are now in 2023, 35 years since the Piper Alpha disaster, the worst ever offshore incident globally by loss of life, which wasn't too far away from where this Oc installation is now. And we're getting this series of HSE problems, be that due to delayed maintenance or otherwise in the North Sea. Uh, We don't really know the circumstances around what caused this particular spill. What we do know is that it took place in September. We're only just hearing about it now due to HSE figures being published. And it came weeks after another kind of six-ton gas release at the BP Mungo field a, a month earlier, I think, via a drilling contractor. Uh, but this one, the 11th significant spill recorded or and classified so far by HSE for 2022. Think about the frequency there. Other HSEs uh, incidents were reported on from fires to asbestos to whatever else. It really doesn't feel like the industry's got too firm a handle on things. Safety side uh, went to RMT's Jake Malloy, who we, we like to do for these things, uh, saying senior executives should be feeling uneasy in their respective office chairs. And uh, as he rightly points out, this is a sector very much under the microscope right now, um, you know, by, uh, in no small part due to things like Shell, as I mentioned, and the windfall tax. But events like these, particularly where there's this risk to safety, there's a risk to the environment, it, it, kind, it, it just simply isn't good enough, is it? And it, you kind of get the gist here. I mean, a significant spill from an HSE perspective. It's not a major spill. But you can see, I, mean, I guess you can see why six tons sounds like a lot, but not in the context in the wider North Sea. But the flip side of that coin, of course, for a single platform, six tons of oil, if you think about that volume um, of highly flammable liquid, very dangerous, shouldn't be sniffed at either. Um, so Repsol Sinopec, the operator for its part, confirming all of this, saying it you know, took, took all steps to rectify the incident and all the regulatory bodies were informed. But the other kind of interesting side is the environmental angle as well. And that, that it was quite surprising to me. So it turns out the incident took place in the Fulmer Marine Conservation Area, designated as such for various reasons. But one which is uh, one of those is that it's home to seven species of ocean quahog. Now, I know Ed, the, the plight of the ocean quahog is, is close to your heart. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was quite interested by this. So we spoke to a marine, bio, well, a fisheries expert at Harriet Watt University who tells me these things, they're effectively clams, but they can live for more than 500 years, um, making it one of the longest living creatures uh, on the planet. So, um, you know, kind of interesting from that side. Six tons of oil in the vast North Sea, as I mentioned, you know, 
it's not huge in comparison to the the broader North Sea. Yes, there are these species in this area, um, but you would. I, th- I think the consensus is because the oil will disperse and because it's so far out to sea, 150 miles, you would expect the impact on these creatures to be relatively minimal, not to say there wouldn't be isolated issues. And then I think that maybe the final point I'll mention, Tessa Khan from the campaign group uh, Uplift, uh, the environmental campaigners, they gave us comment, obviously discussing the safety and environmental side associated with this, also used it to point to concerns about safety cutbacks. Now, we don't know, again, this what happened with this specific case, but you know we are seeing a pattern of HSE issues across the board. I think that's fair to say. So that could be valid. Um, some concerns about delayed maintenance we've seen. She also hit out at companies using the windfall tax measures, perhaps to to cut corners and, and very pointedly mentioned uh, firms using the windfall tax as a cover for cutting jobs. Now, I don't think anyone who's paying attention needs to guess too hard uh, as to who she's uh, referring to there, but it's provocative, not entirely without merit. Costs under pressure, corners can get uh, cut. I'm not saying, again, that's necessarily what's happened in this specific case, but there is a, an issue here in terms of the wider vigilance of the industry and something to be uh, aware of, I think. Um, what do you make of all that, guys? Any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it certainly sounds like a, like a cause for concern. I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know whether, uh, I mean, in terms of sort of the, you, you talk about sort of the, the frequency of these spills and these, these, these accidents. Are, are you implying that things have, have got worse than they were before? Is there is there like, uh, is is it... I mean, obviously, because we're, talk- we're talking about the sort of the broader industry, right? And if and if and if we have seen cuts as a result of you know obviously twenty twenty price crash and you know whatever's happening now, obviously prices feel pretty high. But despite that, there are those kind of concerns. Uh, is 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 there a is there a, that sort of causal link? I suppose is my question. Uh, well, difficult to say in terms of the price uh, stuff. I suppose what we definitely saw during COVID and and the downturn there, that there was this backlog of of maintenance that would normally get uh, handled and del- this issue of delayed maintenance when the oil price um, kind of went down that 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 was very much a concern and HSE were, was talking about it at conferences and things like that um I, I guess what we're seeing now particularly in the last year I, I don't know whether HSE's become more effective in its reporting um obviously we can't we, we can't know everything that goes on in the North Sea but certainly we're seeing a lot of issues getting flagged. As I mentioned, it's not just oil spills, and this would be the 11th that's been classified as significant for the UK during 2022. There will be more to come, surely, or likely, I should say. But we're also seeing things, as I said, like you know, fire um, offshore. There's been you know lots of uh, alarm risks related to potential for fires as well. There has been risk of people being exposed to things like asbestos, for example. There has been just quite a lot of issues that you would uh, you'd be reasonable to deduce to deduce could be linked to things like delayed maintenance, and perhaps operators haven't quite got to grips with yet. I think that would be fair enough to surmise at this stage. Um, And yeah, I mean, I guess, again, you know, this comes up every five years and there's a major anniversary, but it is 35 years since uh, the Piper Alpha disaster. I mean, we're going to be talking a lot about HSE this year. Um, and to see the the frequency for, for an industry that very much prides itself on its ability to, you know, create a safe in a safe environment as much as possible in what is an inherently dangerous place to work you know that there 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 would appear to be signs of of slippage here i think in terms of oil spills directly and, and gas spills directly i would have to 
double check the figures. I think it's possible that those might be on a commensurate kind of level as last year, perhaps. Ed, um, I don't know is the answer. Does the does the regulator need a bigger stick to uh, kind of keep these companies in line? Is it is it a question? I suppose. I guess like there's a. Uh, I suppose it feels like there there are always going to be accidents, right? I think that it feels like the idea that you could eliminate all accidents seems possibly uh unfeasible but do you, is is the balance right well i suppose maybe maybe the best measure is whether anyone's been hurt um and as far as we know there hasn't been anybody seriously injured now that's as far as we know um in the last year or so and certainly in recent years you know we've definitely been in worse places in the not too distant past you know that there was a time not so long ago when workers were terrified to go on helicopters right um so you know i I think it's fair to say we've definitely been in a worse place before from the hse perspective in recent memory um no one's getting hurt at this stage but again the industry talks about you know you need to be constantly vigilant you can never be easy um, about any of this stuff and i think just the, the frequency to which we're seeing things would suggest that maybe that's slipping a bit. So yeah, uh, could HSC maybe have a bit of a firmer hand with all of this going on? Yeah, I think that's probably a fair uh, point to make, Ed. Um, and I guess we'll see what comes of that. And as I say, as we continue coverage around the 35th anniversary, I'm sure we will be speaking to HSE and getting their take on all of this on a more broad picture. But uh, yeah, we'll move on from Repsol Sinopec now. And uh, next up, it's a mixed bag of solar, hydrogen and potholes with Ed Reed. Preconceptions about the pace at which the energy transition would occur have been upended by gas and energy price spikes. Amid this short-term volatility though, the UK must take steps to follow through with its net zero commitments. In the fourth episode of Net Zero Nudge, Energy Voice, in association with EY, drills into some of the questions around electric vehicles. Everyone seems to be thinking about moving to EVs, but is the UK ready? In this episode, Maria Benson, partner at EY, Neil Isaacson, CEO of Liberty Charge, and Peter Dominey, COO of Tether talk us through some of the challenges around how to keep this new fleet moving, what we need, what we're getting, and maybe even some ideas about the alternatives. That's Net Zero Nudge, episode four on EVs, coming soon. Ed, deals are getting signed and uh, a solar car race launched in South Africa, uh, firmly on the road to decarbonisation, as I keep hearing these energy conferences talk about. Uh, Tell us a bit more. Indeed, indeed. For a country that is still, uh, I think, 80% uh, powered by coal, uh, it feels like a big move. But yes, so so, uh, some some quite quite fun news uh, this week, uh, as I I reported. uh, The the Solar Car Challenge, um, sponsored by Sassel, has, uh, has opened opened its its books you can now register your uh, solar powered car to uh, compete we'll have to get involved in that <laughs> wouldn't that be amazing i feel like we should i don't know i have no engineering expertise but i feel we can make something happen something beautiful happen i, I don't want to cut you off in your stride but i just want to i want to, I want to interrogate the picture here a little bit so <laughs> the, the, we could drive yeah yeah yeah, yeah. We, could, we don't have to make one well that's it uh, yeah we can we can we can be the dr- well we can have one one driver this is kind of where i'm getting at so the guy's kind of like so there's a solar panel on the, the body of the car presumably some sort of electricity going around there. Yeah, engineering knowledge going on to, to power the vehicle. And then this guy, the driver, is in like a, a glass pod uh, almost. Uh, it's kind of, yeah, his like head sticking up and he's like in a glass case of emotion kind of thing going on. 
I don't know how that how that quite works out, but it looks pretty interesting. I mean, I don't know how hot it is in South Africa this time of year. I imagine you could get that greenhouse effect of a different kind in terms of just sweating like a madman. But yeah, it, it looks it looks interesting. Sorry, I cut you off in your stride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so 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 the race takes place in September 2024. So we've got a bit of time to uh, come up with some madcap plans, buy some solar panels uh get a go-kart i don't know we can we can make it we can, we can make it work i mean um but yeah so it's i mean and september in south africa is it's is quite nice you know it's kind of coming out of winter it's kind of you know starting to feel a bit warmer there's i'm sure that the sun would be shining so i say we should just go and do it okay <laughs> so so yeah it's it's this it's this incredible race i think it takes seven or eight days um and there are a few kind of different classes that you can do but essentially the way that you do it is uh it's not so much about time it's about the distance that you travel so it's about it's, it's essentially about trying to maximize the efficiency of a sort of a solar powered right. car um so you, and, and and there was sort of you know there were sort of uh there are various different stages you had to go through uh damon as a as, as a as a as a racing car fan i'm sure would uh would, would be particularly uh well placed to uh advise us on the uh, energy voice branded team but yeah it, it feels like you know like it's 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 a really cool uh sort of an event so the last one was in uh was last year um and uh yeah just extraordinary sort of feats of sort of engineering and i suppose endurance right because they cover something like two and a half thousand three thousand kilometers wow. over those eight days so it's 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 a sort of sustained effort of of, of sort of driving and engineering so yeah, it feels it feels great, and 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 I think you know it. There is a slight tendency to uh, you know look at South Africa and its energy woes, and you know sort of these these dreams you know that sometimes you hear from sort of government officials around sort of uh, electric cars and things. And at a point when uh, so I have my, one of my friends is in in South Africa at the moment. She said that she had uh, three and a half pa- hours of power yesterday. Uh, which gives you a, a bit of a feeling about some of the challenges that uh, possibly running an running an EV fleet might encounter. Um, so yeah, so put some solar panels on your on your Tesla. I'm sure that would work, right? Like, uh, what could possibly go wrong? I can't. I mean, I just I'm just trying to get wrap my head around. Like, I mean, even with electric vehicles in Scotland, we talk about like range anxiety, and I know this is a totally different kettle of fish with a, a solar powered car. Um, but it's just not not the sort of thing. For obvious reasons, you, uh, you, this is not a visual medium. But anyone who could see me right now would know that it's a, a rather gloomy looking day in Aberdeen. Uh, <laughs> it's just not feasible in this part of the world. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, what, so wait, so we've got a country that's kind of largely run on coal and a petrochemicals giant, so that's all, um, doing this uh, this solar race. Is, is this greenwashing it or what's the chat here? Well, I mean, I, I think, I mean, look, I think there are, there, are, there are clearly some 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 tensions at play there, right? I mean, I think, uh, you know, as as, as said, the, 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 the coal industry is a sort of a mainstay. Uh, the, the government, uh, the energy minister is clearly a big fan of coal, Possibly, it has been said, uh, less of a fan of renewable energy. Um, so I think I think there are there are pressures there, and I think you know those are kind of clearly manifesting in terms of some of South Africa's current power challenges, right? I mean, I think you know the fact that they just can't keep the lights on is a real indicator of of, of kind of where it's got to, and that's you know a number of problems sort of stacking up over the years. But clearly, the coal on its own is not working. Um, so yeah, and I think you know Sasol has. Uh, 
is obviously a major emitter, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's a petrochemical giant. It, uh, it's got a, a coulter liquids plant that is, uh, I've said before, is, is, is reported to be the largest single source of carbon emissions in the world. But, you know, that's, that said, they, 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 they have got plans to change, right? They are moving to renewable energy. They've signed some, uh, some, some uh, wind uh, plans recently. So, I mean, I think uh, there is clearly an aspiration. Obviously, uh, there are, you know, critics who would say they're not moving fast enough. Um, but I think Sassol has obviously also got some f- serious sort of financial challenges that it's, it's really kind of only coming out of now. So I think there is there is sort of a few, uh, few, few, few problems there. And I think, you know, sort of tying into that question, I mean, I think, you know, uh, is... The, uh, the the other sort of South Africa sort of clean energy sort of story of the week was um, a company called Omnia, which is also a sort of a chemicals producer and has very sort of industrial concerns, has uh, signed up a deal with a German company to uh, secure uh, green ammonia. And, and, and again, this kind of plays into both that kind of pressure to decarbonize, right? I mean, I think that we're seeing globally around companies and, and how you can sell products, you know, domestically and internationally that have ca- high carbon emissions that's a problem right i think you know we are seeing kind of social pressure you know we're seeing kind of carbon border taxes you know increasingly kind of coming up the agenda so i think that this is a this is a, ch- a challenge and i think in a way uh i mean as as as, as this group omnia you know sort of specifically called out the, the the challenges with being a high energy uh consumer and and relying on a sort of an intermittent uh, sort of unreliable grid um you know it's kind of two birds with one stone right you're reducing the call on the grid uh, which is obviously going to help ESCOM with its, you know, challenges and 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 providing power to to you know the broader population, while at the same time helping helping cut emissions. So I think it's it's quite a nice kind of a a, a two uh, step sort of a response to uh, to to the problem. I mean, the the only problem is that obviously, as uh, people who can afford uh to pay move away from escom's grid um and and become essentially sort of energy independent fewer and fewer people will be paying for uh electricity from escom which possibly runs the risk of increasing escom's financial woes and the debts i mean i don't remember off the top of my head, but it's into the billions. I mean, it's a, it's a really sort of a significant challenge for Escom. Escom seemed like a tricky company <laughs> these days. <laughs> uh, that's an understatement of the century. Sorry, that doesn't add much. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, casting our minds back a couple of weeks with the the stories about the uh, the uh, attempted assassination plot on the uh, group CEO uh, Andre de Reta. So, look, I mean, I think it's there are there are clearly some some really high level challenges, but I I think the 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 the, the sad reality is that obviously. People living in South Africa, people, you know, working in South Africa companies can't rely on ESCOM to kind of come through and solve these problems. So I think, you know, on the one hand, you see these sort of whimsical stories like the kind of the solar car challenge, which, you know, obviously is is kind of like an entertaining story. But it's also, you know, like there are like some actually kind of like kind of quite interestingly important ideas there around efficiency, around around sort of solar PV. But there's also that sort of terrible story around, you know, what you do when um, a country, you know, cannot afford to, you know, sort of do do the the, the bare bones of, of of what is needed to sort of sustain economies. And I suppose, you know, we, look, we're, we're sort of seeing some of those kind of pressures playing out here, aren't they? I mean, I think, was it last week, uh, you know, some power companies sent around a sort of a trying to incentivize companies 
you know consumers in the UK to 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 stop using power at sort of certain points of the day in order to you know sort of secure uh, you know generation for, for for essential industries at points when when the grid might be stretched so look we're all kind of facing those challenges and obviously as we sort of transition that's going to manifest in different ways obviously coal is less of an issue here you know we're more exposed to gas but i think you know it's uh, it's 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 something that feels like a like a bit of a universal. Yeah, no, absolutely. Damon, you've been a bit quiet over there. Um, what's the Energy Voice uh, solar car race team going to be called? <laughs> I'm, I'm concerned about the solar panels. I mean, over here, the, the the hot water tanks don't seem to heat up and get hot showers from solar. But but yeah, I don't know. EV powered by the sun. That's my, my lack of creativity. EV by EV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go for that. Good one. I thought we were just going to call it hot showers and see how that goes. That sounds a bit erotic. Anyway, moving on, moving on. Okay. Uh, thanks, Ed. Let's uh, swiftly uh, leave the race before I uh, cause some problems. Next up, we'll drive over to Damon Evans and m and in the Asia-Pacific. The world is in a race to cut emissions, with a number of governments taking steps to try and secure their industries a more competitive advantage. Bigger, Faster, Better aims to evaluate what progress the UK is making and brings in comparisons from around the world to allow us to think through who is making the most progress and what countries could be doing to do better. In the most recent episode of Bigger, Faster, Better, Energy Voice in association with Womble Bond Dickinson drills into some of the questions around onshore wind. Why is progress so slow in England? Are politics the main change are other parts of europe moving faster to get some answers to these questions and more download and listen to the most recent episode of bigger faster better to hear me in conversation with womble bond dickinson partner chris tanner and sse director for onshore renewables finley mccutcheon bigger faster better on onshore wind out now Okay, Damon, you've been uh, taking a look at M&A and uh, investment more broadly, a bit of subsea as well uh, in your patch. Tell us a bit more about where you've landed. Yeah, it looks to be a, a potentially exciting year in Indonesia for upstream M&A opportunities. Despite the, the above surface challenges, Indonesia's subsurface oil and gas potential still remains attractive. And um, we're, we're look, a, lot of, a lot of reshuffling of portfolios seems to be on the cards for majors, independents, and maybe even national oil companies. Um, but as we've discussed many a time on this pod, Indonesia has not been an easy place for international upstream companies to do business over the past decade or so. We've seen a lot of the big boys pack up and leave. Uh, Chevron has, is, is on the way out. ConocoPhillips has left. And most recently in the news, Shell is... Um, looking to divest its stake in the, the giant Masala block, which holds the Abadi field. That, that, that's got a bit more exciting recently as Indonesia is pushing its national oil company, Pertamina, to, to take over Shell's 35% share of that block. So Shell will probably be quite happy if they can get a deal and they seem to be um, have the edge in any negotiations because Indonesia is desperate to get rid of Shell, which is holding the country to, to ransom in a way because the project's very important. Um, so, so there's that. And then there's companies that, that might exit Indonesia. We've got Repsol, which might have to exit because they might not be able to get their carbon capture and storage project over the line for a particular development, which um, is Greenfield, and that won't meet their carbon uh, emissions reduction targets, net zero. Uh, we have Mubadala. They're doing some interesting deep water drilling campaigns, but they also have been rumored to be possibly looking to do a a divestment 
And then we have the companies with growth ambitions. So we have Harbor Energy, and um, and they're seeing a lot of upside to the diversification in their portfolio as the impacts of the windfall tax introduced in the UK start to hit their bottom line, which I'm sure you guys know a lot more about than me. Um, but Indonesia has been treating Harbor well. They had some great exploration success last year. They're going to drill a few more deep water wells this year. Uh, they've got the plan of development for their tuna project approved by the Indonesian government in January. We had that news, so that, that's pretty pretty promising. Can I, can I ask, can I stop you on Harbour there, maybe just to pick up on that? Because I, I guess what we've been hearing quite a lot of with regards to the windfall tax is that companies might look elsewhere for... Uh, to, to, to invest their, their funds. And uh, invariably, uh, Southeast Asia keeps kind of coming up, not just for Harbour, but other independents as well. I, I think Enquest might have mentioned, uh, I don't know if they mentioned Southeast Asia specifically, but that seems to be the, the read of things. Um, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, if other companies have struggled with Indonesia specifically, why do you think... Or do you think, you know, these UK independents like Harbour would be able to find a bit more success, perhaps being smaller companies, more amiable, perhaps, to the regime of, of, of the day? I don't, I don't know how, how things will play out there, but just interesting to see the dynamics. Uh, I, I think because Harbour's perhaps a smaller company and has less baggage compared to the the, the majors like Total Energies and and um shell and and chevron which had a you know big kind of i suppose issues above ground challenges with the government etc and harbor energy in its merger uh it was premier oils assets that were here before and i think they always had quite a good relationship with the government and and harbor have also been able to negotiate quite well with the government to get good terms to make um these particular projects go ahead go forward so so they're getting quite you know, the government's being quite welcoming to them working with them and giving them what they want basically so they're encouraging investment which is unusual in indonesia and it's a good positive turn over the past year or two and i suppose it's quite the opposite to how harbour sees the uk at the moment um but then there is another kind of twist to that whole tuna development and that's going to involve a pipeline subsea pipeline to Vietnam, where the gas will be sold. And China, uh, with their South China Sea maritime claims, were were all over the drilling at at the harbor development in the past year or two, and we covered that on Energy Voice. And uh, and they're all over drilling anywhere where they dispute the waters. They're like sending their boats in and ships, and they have all these like standoffs. Now, this pipeline that goes through Vietnam waters it's going through an area where Repsol was trying to do a development a couple of years back, and there was this huge standoff with the Chinese over that oil or gas drilling. And in the end, Repsol were forced to pull out. So it's hard to see now that the Chinese are suddenly going to welcome this pipeline to go straight through when they also contest kind of the, the tuna development. And we've had Indonesia say, well, this, this development going forward, the plan of development, this will assert our maritime sovereignty and, and you know, we've got a big navy and that kind of thing. So, so there's kind of this geopolitical kind of flashpoint, which, which could be an issue at some point, but, but that remains to be seen. But uh, another thing on the, on the harbour tuna project, um, they're in the midst of selecting their preferred contractors for, to bid for subsea front-end engineering and design packages um so we've got more on that in our upcoming 
report, our supplement, which I think is due out in the next week or so. Oh, David, look at that. Yeah. The, the, the cross-pollination, it's, 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 it's elegance. Look at that. Look at that segue. It's beautiful. It's, it's almost seamless until I pointed it out myself and ruined it. Sorry. So look out for that. $24 billion of subsidy spending expected in Asia-Pacific over the next five years. $6.4 billion will be spent this year. More on that in, in the future. But yeah, so Harbour Energy looking good. Quite an exciting kind of space to be operating in, and and I'm get. I mean, I, I don't know what the the tax system is like in uh, Indonesia versus the UK. I, I've got a funny feeling it'll be uh, a bit more uh, generous uh, to investment at the moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, it looks it certainly looks from the UK side anyway that uh, you know they're looking for answers, as you say, to the windfall tax that. There are people that are saying to me right now, like, why on earth would you invest in the UK when you've got all of this going on? And let's not forget, um, there'll be a general election within, likely within the next kind of couple of years, and uh, a, a, a fairly antagonistic Labour government who are going to tax it more heavily. Um, so it's not looking great for the UK in that regard. Um, it looks like, you know, Asia Pacific, you know, you threw out some numbers there, Damon, especially regarding the subsea spend. There's a lot going on. So, I mean, maybe not just for... Uh, the operators, but maybe, you know, contractors, um, you know, not just, I guess, in the UK, but Norway, elsewhere, might be looking at this area as as quite a quite a strong, I'm sure they already look at it as a strong hotspot, but it does seem like there's quite a lot ramping up at the moment. Yeah, we have we have a couple of mega projects in the pipeline, whether, whether they will go ahead or not remains to be seen. We have Reistad estimated there's $16 billion worth of greenfield upstream oil and gas projects to be sanctioned this year in Southeast Asia alone. Um, the caveat is 30% of them are at high risk of getting delayed, which is always an issue in, in Southeast Asia. But still, if, if the other 70% go ahead, that's pretty good. Um, there's a huge Block B development in Vietnam, which is a $3 billion development. That would be a, a contract to feast frenzy kind of thing. You know, loads of work there, but that's been delayed for years so i don't see that happening this year but you know maybe in the next year or two malaysia a lot going on there for contractors and and, and there, there also seem to be some quite interesting sort of ccs moves right i mean which i think you know does it does that feel like do they sort of go hand in hand now is there a, is there a sense that uh decarbonization is essential to these kind of uh oil and gas expansion plans i, I think in, in in malaysia i mean petronas have just sanctioned their kasari ccs development which is huge and probably one of the, the biggest in the world certainly in this part of the world and i think uh, petronas like to like to brand themselves as having uh, advantaged barrels or low carbon barrels so it's definitely going hand in hand in Malaysia and progressing there. Indonesia, there's a lot of, uh, well, we have BP at their Tangu projects pushing ahead with a, a CCS project. So all, all the majors that are still here, like Repsol, BP, um, they're all looking to, they won't do new developments without CCS. So we are seeing that, but the regulations and the policy hasn't really caught up with with the you know it's not quite there yet there's there's so much proposed and, and some happening but we need more policy and support to, to really encourage the industry but, but you have shell exxon mobil really excited by the geological potential here to store carbon and then they're all trying to hook it up with you know shipping and ja and the japanese firms that will get involved and build all the infrastructure so you see it kind of this build out coming over this decade but it's yeah they're still trying to fit the jigsaw together 
Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Damon, for the feed feeding frenzy. And uh, that is us for this week's uh, episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. We're off to go and build our solar racing car and see where we get with that. I don't think very far, but we'll, we'll see how we get on. Uh, thank you to Ed and to Damon for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.